0: Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The U.S. electric grid is transforming at an accelerating pace. In recent years, a truly unprecedented number of clean energy projects have lined up to connect to the grid, a fact that has caught grid operators and their government regulators off guard and served to highlight the fact that our transmission system is ill prepared for the fundamental changes that are taking place. The challenge that the electricity system faces is hard to overstate. According to estimates cited by the U.S. Department of Energy, transmission line mileage must increase by 60% by the end of this decade and triple by the middle of this century to accommodate so much new clean power. Yet the fact is that the construction of long-distance transmission lines has all but come to a standstill. On today's podcast, we're going to dive into the reasons behind lagging transmission development and look at efforts that are taking place inside the nation's electricity markets and in Washington to jumpstart the construction of regional and interregional transmission projects. My guest is Rob Gramlich, president of power sector consultancy Grid Strategies and a frequent expert witness on grid issues before the U.S. Congress. Rob recently co-authored a report card on the state of grid development in this country. Spoiler alert, few regions earned a passing grade. Rob, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Great to be here, Andy. Appreciate it.
0: So, recent reports from the DOE and others have highlighted the fact that more electric transmission is needed in this country to enable the energy transition. Start us out, why is transmission critical to the energy transition?
1: Well, there's a few technical reasons. Most people understand that the really good wind and solar sites tend to be far from population centers and that that is true uh i'm not sure everybody appreciates the the volumes of power the, just the magnitude that we need and the limited ability to get that power you know in cities or right close to load uh so we need we just need a lot of power and uh the, you know the land is cheap and the resource is plentiful far away so that's one issue but also when we get beyond the current say, roughly 20% renewables you start to really need to focus on the, the time and place of the energy production. and what tends to be the case is a regionally diversified set of renewable energy projects leads to a, a steadier overall supply. The wind is always blowing somewhere as they say. And so that that ends up being really important as we go from you know 20 to 30 to 50 or more percent renewable energy and the only way to integrate all those projects around large regions is with transmission.
0: So despite this need for transmission, the fact is that the development of the long-distance regional power lines that are going to be needed to transport all this energy has actually declined over the past decade. How steep has the decline been, and, and why has it happened? The
1: positive spin on that is that we did this 10 or 13 or so years ago. A few regions built quite a lot of transmission, and were are able to integrate most of the renewables we, we have today, especially the wind, but also a lot of the solar. And so we we know we can do it. And we know the, the barriers are not insurmountable. But you're right. Uh, we had this building spell uh, period for 2010 to 2013-ish, and then it stopped, just dropped like a rock. Uh, and for 10 years, almost no long haul, large capacity transmission has been built. There are a few reasons. At that time, solar and gas prices dropped, and you could you can do a fair amount of solar closer to load, and uh, gas units you can do closer to load, and you know the the high hopes in the two thousand you know eight nine era of a climate bill and a carbon tax or cap and trade or all those things, sort of you know they they didn't happen, and I think a lot of the energy went around kind of the. The energy around the, the you know national plans for a big transmission grid kind of you know went out with them. There were also some complexities around Order One Thousand from FERC in terms of who gets to build and own the projects, and a lot of utilities lost interest supporting ambitious regional transmission plans. So they, they pretty much dried up to a to a trickle, and uh, you know that's where we've been stuck for about a decade.
0: It's interesting that Order 1000 was intended to introduce competition into these transmission line projects. It seems to actually, instead of introducing competition, which it, it theoretically, I guess, has done, as you said, it's disincentivized these transmission companies from going out and proactively looking at needs and, and building transmission to meet those needs, right?
1: I think that's right. It's a controversial point. And, you know, competition really works well in generation, and it has worked well in transmission in certain areas like in the UK and in in, uh, Texas, where they did the uh, competitive renewable energy zones and the Public Utility Commission of Texas oversaw the procurement and a competitive process. But there are other parts of the country. It's just a very diverse country. And there are areas where it hasn't worked. Those areas where it hasn't worked happen to be some of the places where the transmission was most important, like much of the center of the country in the MISO and SPP regions. For those who know the, you know, regional transmission organizations right in the center of the Great Lakes states and then the Plains states, it really hasn't worked well there. And so, yeah, I think there's an argument for uh, maybe taking a new look at, at how transmission competition is done. If it can work in a, in a given region, great, keep it. But um, I don't think we should assume it works well everywhere.
0: And one of the key issues here is that there's nobody really planning the overall grid in in this country, right? So before we go further, I just wanted to define a little bit more clearly who or what organization is responsible for the overall grid development, and, and what are their powers or limitations in terms of pushing new projects forward?
1: Well, I mean, historically, the Department of Energy had very little role. They got this um, limited role of backstop siting in the 2005 Energy Policy Act, but of course, never never worked, and they didn't really do anything with it. They are now the current Biden administration Department of Energy is doing a lot, and they got some funds, in my opinion, very little funds for transmission, but they're doing very well, I think, with what they have. So they're getting a little bit more a role, but it's 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 a far cry from any national planning authority. And then uh, FERC has the most actual jurisdiction over transmission policy, but, you know, FERC's history is not really Aligned with any kind of national planning role, either Um, you know it it literally fills a a gap. Um, The agency was created to just fill a gap in state jurisdiction, and that's kind of implies the sort of you know backseat and and gap filling role that FERC had historically. Now that role has been increasing gradually over the years. The ninety two Act and then FERC Order eight eighty eight and three or four other major nationwide FERC rules that the courts have affirmed have given FERC a much greater role. But it's still kind of set up as a a quasi-judicial agency. It mostly acts in response to contested tariff filings that come in, and then they adjudicate those uh, controversies. So it's it's still a little bit unnatural for FERC to proactively plan or do the planning. And uh, there's there's no real uh, prospect of FERC actually doing the planning, but they can require planning. They can require the jurisdictional utilities participate in a process and produce a regional plan, and they can do the same in, in the interregional context between RTOs. So that's what FERC has been uh, talking about doing, and uh, of late, and, and I, you know, I hope they I hope they follow through on that.
0: So the regions have for quite some time been required at least to come up with plans for for how they're going to, you know, move forward with developing their grids. But you you've co-authored a report that grades transmission development efforts. The title of the report is Transmission Planning Development, excuse me, Transmission Planning and Development Regional Report Card, and it looks at 10 major transmission grid regions in the US and how well they've done in, in planning the grid. And for the most part, the grades are astonishingly low, mostly Ds and even an F. Can you introduce us to these regions and you know overall why have they fallen short?
1: Well, we're in a little bit of a period of a lull in FERC activity under previous Chairman Glick. They had this proposal for regional planning and it had a lot of the the same requirements that uh, we use in this report in terms of all regions should do proactive planning, meaning you know take a look 10 or 20 years out to see the generation additions and retirements and do the plan accordingly, use scenarios to look at severe weather and other uncertain but important grid factors, and look at multiple values of transmission, reliability, congestion, reduction, et cetera. So there, there are now, I think, just from FERC's proposed rule, a set of widely accepted best practices that all regions should should do. And so we we used those as kind of a benchmark. And again, with this lull between the uh, proposed rule and a final rule, we thought it a good time to to you know just see how well we're doing. Because regents don't have to wait for a FERC final rule, they can go ahead and get busy now. So we use that uh, those uh, be- uh, best practice planning methods as a benchmark, and we also looked at actual performance. Like, have they been building long haul high voltage transmission, and are there interconnection cues you know, good or bad, as an indication of whether they're alleviating. Grid capacity constraints, and then also just congestion, like the hour to hour, day to day uh, cost of delivering from point A to point B. Each region reports its congestion. So we we took all of those, and of course, high congestion means you know high grid capacity constraints, and they those you know those don't exist if they're doing their job building transmission, but they do if they're not. So those were the most of the metrics of. Uh, good performance, where you get an A if things are going well on on each of those counts. And what we found, we weren't totally surprised. And we had a big committee, lots of people helping. This is under this was done for the Americans for a Clean Energy Grid, and that has a very large, you know, list of participants and stakeholders who were all reviewing and contributing. And we had a, an advisory committee, but we found a couple regions were doing pretty well. MISO, you know, sticks out as usually the kind of poster child for doing a pretty good job on proactive regional planning. And, you know, they get a little extra credit because it's a multi-state RTO. It's harder there than, say, in California and New York to get alignment.
0: And just to jump in for the listeners, MISO is the mid-continent ISO. That's the uh, RTO, the the electricity market and, and and system in the center of this country.
1: That's right. Yeah. And it's it's kind of the Great Lakes states, mostly the upper Midwest, but then also gets down to Louisiana now with uh, the energy system anyway they've been doing uh, what they call long-range transmission planning and that's going pretty well and they're doing that all those practices that again they're not rocket science and uh everybody should be doing it but it does take a lot of work to get the parties together and do the studies and to figure out the who's going to pay how much for transmission so um anyway mice is doing that california iso is also doing quite a lot of that now uh they scored pretty high uh new york iso is doing some after years and years of you know congestion between upstate and downstate new york there's some activity now with lines uh going from upstate to downstate but you know those are sort of the exceptions the the rule is mostly the grades were you know c down to f a couple regions were were f and a couple d's so you know there and you know, we're trying to just be objective as possible. Are you, you know, are you actually doing a generation forecast, like how much generation is coming on and going off the system? And are you planning for that future resource mix? And in most cases, no, that's not happening. So, yeah, that seems like a, a real problem. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing the downsides of this incremental approach right now where we're not really planning in most regions nobody's really doing proactive forward-looking planning and so all we're doing is sort of connecting the next generation uh, you know that comes in which uh, turns out to be you know that's that's the most expensive way to do things you don't get the economies of scale of higher voltage power the, the power lines that can deliver more for lower costs or the you know, network interactions that you get from a regional plan, looking at a whole bunch of lines and technologies all together to find the optimal mix. Uh, we're not doing any any of that in most in most regions. So, uh, you know, we tried to just uh, be honest about what's going on. We also tried to communicate to uh, to the world that, you know, we're not trying to judge or find fault. We're trying to show the you know positive things that every region can do and uh hopefully each region has something to learn from every other region and also kind of see oh look it's not rocket science at least one region's doing everything that needs to be done or or like you know some of these practices are being done somewhere you know the the semester's not over. These be are interim grades, and uh, uh, I don't know if the Kleiman school or UPenn operates this way. But we're gonna we're gonna keep the final grades open and, and hope everybody improves, and we can adjust them upward in the future.
0: Well, let's definitely be optimistic about this. I mean, just to 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 review what you've just said here, basically, what we've got right now is kind of a reactive rather than a forward looking approach to the transmission, right? So you've got new right. generators, new wind, solar plants that want to connect. When they connect, they may actually have to upgrade the grid to accommodate the electricity that they're going to provide to the system. But there's nobody looking at this, at least in most areas, is what I'm getting from this conversation, who are really saying, "Okay, where is this system going? What are the transmissions needs going to be in a decade? How much renewable energy are we going to have to interconnect? How much new load are we going to have? And are we going to proactively create a grid that's going to accommodate all those new interconnections? And as you said, that would be much better to take the holistic approach than the piecemeal, let's do this little project, this little project, this little project, and the 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 costs add up that way. Is that right?
1: Exactly right. Perfectly stated. Yep. Uh, It seems intuitive. Most people think that transmission planners are out there and they do their job, that the reality is we're not actually planning transmission. We're not actually doing what any normal person would think of as a transmission planner's job, which is to look at the future resource mix and and the future load and, and connect the dots, literally draw lines to connect the generation to the load.
0: So fill in one more blank here, if, if you don't mind. So, again, these regional transmission organizations, PJM is the one here that that I'm here in, in Philadelphia, they have a, a, an annual transmission plan called their Regional Expansion Transmission Plan. That should encompass this, but it's not. Explain to me a little bit more why it's not.
1: It's very uh, short-term focused and just on reliability requirements. So the thing that gets transmission built right now is just if you violate a NERC criteria, NERC being the reliability authority, which is just a very narrow and limited way to look at transmission. It's, it's just like if, if your car is literally going to fall apart when you drive down the street, that's the only time you do anything to, to fix it. And so, and that's pretty common. That's that's basically what PJM is doing. That's what most regions uh, are doing now. Since you asked about PJM, I'll note that they just very recently announced a new program to develop a long-range transmission planning effort. So we don't know. If that's going to succeed or actually result in a long range transmission plan, we're hopeful. But they actually literally uh, two days from now, they have, uh, I think their first meeting uh, on that. So they're you know, they're getting started with something to their credit,
0: going off on on this PGM situation and something you said a few minutes ago about FERC and its NOPER, FERC issued a notice of proposed rulemaking. I believe it was in May of twenty twenty two to address its shortfall of of new transmission planning and uh, projects. And and one of the key proposed features of this, and you've also hinted at this as well, is that it would require transmission operators to take a longer view of transmission needs 20 years or more into the future. Give us a little more what that might look like and, and again, why it's important.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I think it's a, an excellent proposed rule. I think Chairman Glick and the other commissioners and staff did a really good job. Uh, there's a few places in it where it, it gets weak need that I think needs to be corrected before the final rule is, is issued. But the, the, the basic gist of it is just not any more complicated than just saying each region, each utility that's jurisdictional to FERC needs to be part of a regional planning process that does certain things, the main thing being look out 20 years at the generation mix, expected additions in retirements and load growth, and plan based on that. And that fundamental change, planning for the future or proactive planning, that's just a very basic thing. And it's a it's a big change from the status quo.
0: And one of the issues here as well is all these public policy goals of the individual states that has to be included in this conversation as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. And public policy as a term gets a little bit touchy because now we're getting into where, you know, some states don't have uh, climate or clean energy policies, and others do. And then you get into an argument about who benefits from the transmission. And Order 1000 made a big deal out of public policy. To me, I, I just think it's planning for the future. It is what it is. We're not the RTO, the regional planner shouldn't be judging whether states should or shouldn't have clean energy policies. The, the reality is utilities have resource plans, they're going to be buying one type of power or another. And that is generally known and knowable information. So the planner can make a reasonable forecast of that future generation mix. You know, if Kentucky and West Virginia are still going to have uh, some coal on their system in the PJM region, it it is what it is. It's not the transmission planners to judge. It's not like FERC is becoming an environmental regulator. It's just, it is what it is. But it's, again, it's known and knowable. So the planners need to act accordingly and plan a reliable and efficient grid based on that.
0: PJM resorted to a method called the state agreement approach with the state of New Jersey, which is building a lot of offshore wind. And under this approach, PJM took over a lot of the transmission planning responsibilities for New Jersey to accommodate that offshore wind is that is that kind of a model that we might see coming forward I hope not You hope not interesting mm-hmm.
1: It does a little bit if like if nothing's happening like in PJM that was an improvement that was you know heralded by some because it's it was better than nothing and if you're you know, if you're in New Jersey and trying to meet your clean energy goals, and PJM is doing no planning, then at least you can step in and say, "Well, you know, we want a plan that does such and such, and we and the state will pay for it." So it's great. But then, what what about all the benefits that all the other states get from that that transmission uh, that that gets built? Uh, mm-hmm. Moreover, uh, all the reliability and congestion cost reduction benefit, and uh, just recently. PJM put out numbers saying that in the winter offshore wind is providing 70% capacity value to the to the whole region. So if you have offshore wind farms then basically wind is as good as as gas combined cycle and CTs. Offshore wind is the, is the same quality uh, for being there as like a backup fuel source as gas combined cycle and and CTs. And that's reliability value for the entire system and you only get it if you Build the transmission to get that. So, there are all these multiple benefits of transmission and multiple beneficiaries across the area. So, really, the entire region should pay according to how much they benefit. Taken to the economic purity, I think, you know, I, w- I would commend um, Harvard professor uh, Bill Hogan's work. You know, he's, of course, the you know, one of the, the leaders, if not the leader of the market design that's used in most of these regions and his his recommendation on transmission is, is first of all, you know, the, the market by itself doesn't do in nearly adequate transmission. So you do have to tra- uh, plan it, which, you know, for a, a, a pure free marketeer that, that might sound weird, but the reality is you do need to plan it to get the efficient Amount, um, but then secondarily, you know, Doctor Hogan would would say, you know, do a benefit cost analysis to see, you know, how much to build and what type to build, and then assign the cost according to the beneficiaries that come out of that analysis. And that's the economically pure way to do it. It's a little bit harder in practice to, you know, bean count every electron and who benefited exactly how much. But you can do something, and it's it doesn't have to be the case that everybody pays the same. But that's where you know now we're into the cost allocation question of, uh, you know, who's supposed to pay how much. And that's, you know, that's a regulatory issue that the PJM and FERC would have to uh, have to figure out. But in general, we need to make sure that all of the beneficiaries pay for the benefits, the various types of benefits that they get. And that's where state agreement is, you know, it's better than status quo in some places, but it's not nearly as far as we need to go.
0: So cost allocation, who benefits from these new lines is obviously, it sounds like one of the major challenges going forward that's going to have to be figured out.
1: Certainly is, yes.
0: So let me ask you this, Rob, what recommendations have you and your co-authors come up with for an ideal process for dealing with transmission development and planning going forward?
1: The basics as I said, are proactively planning for the future resource mix. If you get just one thing out of this podcast or our report or the FERC NOPER is just planned for the future. But then there's some other secondary recommendations. The multiple values need to be quantified and in- incorporated. Scenario-based to look at severe weather and other uh, scenarios, high load, low load. Um, by the way, load is, seems to be growing dramatically, so that's another driver of this entire initiative. And then technologies come in here. So grid enhancing technologies can create a lot of headroom on the system and those should be pursued. We really need to do this in a um, cost effective way for consumers and grid enhancing technologies don't get uh, deployed nearly as much as they should, at least in this country. Other countries have different incentives for utilities and they deploy a lot more of them. So we kind of need to make sure we're deploying those appropriately. And really only after we do that do we know how much and where the transmission new transmission should be. So that's one. and then um, the types of new transmission is, is something that you know needs attention. There's new uh, types of uh, conductors, uh, high efficiency conductors that are low sag and deliver more power, including superconductors. Uh, and composite core and other technologies for the structural elements. So, you know, those need to be incorporated as well. And I, I think it's reasonable for FERC to not mandate particular technologies because FERC, you know, sort of isn't supposed to pick winners and losers on technology, but they can require processes that lead to appropriate you know decisions about uh, which technology to t- deploy in what way.
0: You know, it's interesting on this issue of the conductors, the reconductoring uh, Is a, an article I saw recently in the in the press somewhere talking about you could take existing power lines and then you could put new lines up that are have instead of steel cores, carbon fiber cores that are much lighter. You could put thicker lines essentially to carry more electricity in the existing right of way. How much potential is there in that?
1: Yes, yeah, so I think huge potential. And so, I you know, when we go back to the top of, of this. Podcasts about the you know doubling or tripling of capacity that we need—that's uh, all true. But I don't want people to just get stuck with the image of you know we need that many new rights of way because everybody knows how hard new rights of way will be. It's a lot more nuanced than that. There are a lot more ways to deliver power. I mentioned some of those technology options, but yeah, as you say, reconductoring is a great opportunity, partly because a lot of the lines, like the the literal wire or cable is 60 or 70 years old in a lot of places. And so it's great they last that long, but you know, we're for better or for worse, we're at that point in the cycle where they, they need to be replaced from a consumer perspective. A lot of consumer interests are not thrilled with the fact that we have to pay for these new expensive lines just to get the same service we're getting. But you know, but if you're gonna do that anyway, you might as well replace it with an upgraded line that could deliver sometimes double or more of the, the capacity. And that's what some of these uh, advanced conductors, high efficiency conductors can do. So I, I think that's a, a, a very large opportunity. We did a report on that at Grid Strategies, that and other reports are on our website where we tried to you know do, do some numbers around that nationally. But it's a significant carbon impact overall. And then there's, you know, other more creative types of corridors. You know, you could go uh, along rail and highway and, and uh, you know, other things like that using existing corridors and, and rights of ways. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of nuanced and alternative ways that we can get new transmission.
0: I want to ask you, you mentioned weather in there as well. How is a grid developed to be resilient against extreme weather?
1: This is really a major driver, and in particular, you know, this this topic is one really that resonates with a lot of um, a lot of policymakers who are not quite prioritizing climate and clean energy as much as others. Um, everybody cares about reliability. So what we're finding is, you know, we basically have a reliable grid, but for these severe weather incidents that seem to be keep happening that are undeniable. And it's severe cold as weather as well as heat. And then sometimes drought can affect the cooling water of thermal plants. So usually what happens is these severe weather incidents affect a a bunch of generators on the system. So and then and it's all types of generators that are affected. I mean, nuclear, coal, gas can be affected and wind and solar can be affected as well by different things, all of them by you know, different things, but no generation is immune from severe weather as a general matter. So, then given that, turns out transmission is a fantastic insurance policy against that because mm. uh, these weather patterns, while they can be large, the severe part of them tend to be relatively narrow. And if you go a few hundred miles away, it's a different weather pattern, just not as severe and there tends to be a lot of available generation so you can have a lot of generation that you know that goes offline uh, and as long as you have as long as you have interregional transmission, you can get that delivery and that's what we keep finding if you look at and you know, we did reports on these as well, uh, Winterstorm Yuri and Elliot and some of the other ones if you just look at those like few day events, a tremendous amount of value would accrue if we just had a gigawatt more of capacity. That was the you know arbitrary metric we we chose, but you can you know save consumers a few hundred million dollars just in a couple of days if you had another gigawatt of capacity. You can almost you know pay for a half of a line or sometimes most of the value of a line that you'll you'll have for 40 years. So that's the type of thing that is not actually normally incorporated into planning. And yet, you know, when you look backwards, that's the that's the huge value. Most of the value of transmission is in these stressed times. And so we need to find a way to prospectively, when we're planning for the future, take that value into account. Because uh, while we don't know exactly when or where the next severe weather incident will be, or which generation exactly will be affected, we know that over and over again, it keeps happening. So why don't we plan for that that, that likelihood, and uh, if we did that, then the value of interregional transmission would would really start showing up in these plans.
0: I want to jump to kind of one of the one of the elephant, elephants in the room on this whole issue, and that's permitting reform, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, there's been a, a lot of talk about this in Washington over the last few years. Permitting reform, as it applies to gas pipelines, as it applies to electric transmission lines, the whole gamut. How important is permitting reform going to be? to enabling the type of long-distance transmission that we need getting built?
1: Well, it is very, very important. You kind of need all three of what we call the three Ps, planning, permitting, and paying. We talked about paying, as a cost allocation problem, and we've talked about planning a fair amount. But yeah, now we're under the third P, and it's critical. Permitting, it takes two main forms. It's uh, f- you know more federal authority relative to local and state governments on transmission permits to move a little bit more towards the gas pipeline model where FERC issues the certificates. That's one aspect. Another aspect is the environmental statutes and implementation of them by different federal agencies. And there are efficiencies in the implementation of that that, in in, in my opinion, don't change the environmental f- thresholds or standards They just change the process to make it more efficient, particularly when you have multiple agencies involved in administering different environmental statutes. And of course, there are many environmental statutes and many agencies, and often it can be an uncoordinated process between many agencies and decision makers and all of that. So a lot of that work is, we should say, is really a an administrative function where we've been noticing a lot more permits being issued of late. So I, I think you can say the Biden administration is getting permits done and supporting uh, linear infrastructure you know, in that way and doing the, the hard work of making agencies work together and and you know meet timelines and things like that. You know, based on evidence so far, um, so that's important. But there are also legislative improvements that could help. There are, for example, cases where NEPA would apply twice for the same line, and you have to go through you know, an environmental impact statement process more than once. And so those are the types of things that need to be cleaned up, and only legislation can do that.
0: Earlier this year, DOE, Department of Energy, published a report titled The National Transmission Needs Study, and it identifies areas of the country that need more transmission. And in May of this year, the same Department of Energy began a process to identify what are called national interest transmission corridors, where new transmission would be particularly critical. How would the corridor designation be used to speed transmission development?
1: Yeah, the Department of Energy is doing a lot of work on studying the transmission needs and putting out good reports, in my opinion. Working towards you know moving from draft you know needs to final need study and then a national transmission planning study uh, sometime I think in the winter. The purpose of of these are well I mean you know one purpose is just to tell the world and all the utilities and states and everybody where the national priorities are and that's useful. In and of itself, a uh, second purpose is the financing tools that DOE was given in the combination of the uh, IIJA Infrastructure Law and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act (IRA). And obviously, the agency is thinking about how do they prioritize their limited dollars, and you know, national priority pathways give them a, a strong indication where the where the priorities are. And then the third is in the national interest electric transmission corridors for ultimately uh, a FERC permit potentially where the Department of Energy has the role of designating the corridor and then and then FERC has the role of uh, issuing a permit and depending on what what the states and local governments do. That authority has never been used. Uh, It was attempted a couple times, and uh, there were a couple of court decisions over the years uh, since that provision was originally put in place in the E-Pact of 2005. There were some court decisions around the 2009-10 timeframe that did a lot of damage to that authority, so it kind of was a dead letter for more than a decade, but the IIJA law kind of undid those court decisions and put it back in, in place in at least the way that I thought it was originally intended. So anyway, that authority does exist. DOE is sort of working towards uh, designation and FERC is simultaneously uh, has a has a rulemaking to implement those legislative changes from IIJA, so you know we could be seeing, say, over the next year, some actual designations. You know where where uh, transmission pathways are deemed in the national interest. Some financing could go with it, and some permitting authority from FERC could go with it. And I'll just add one other note on that. The Department of Energy's been proactively noting that it, it also has the authority to respond to applications from project sponsors uh, for designation of corridors. So it doesn't all have to come out of the the study, the kind of, you know, national lab analysts and models. You know, if some transmission developer thinks they have a, a great line that satisfies all the criteria of national interest, they can file that information and related studies with uh, DOE uh, and DOE can you know, look at it and receive comment from others and then issue a decision agreeing or disagreeing uh, with that. So that's another opportunity that exists.
0: So to sum up here, DOE would determine the corridors, what are the the priority corridors, and then, interesting, as you said, FERC would have the authority to approve these corridors, even if the states oppose them. And that's interesting because that's the first time if, if it works this time, okay, that yep. we'll actually see someone with a national authority overseeing the map of the United States and saying, you know what, we need a transmission line here. The state says no, but we're not going to let that one state hold the thing up. We're going to push it through and make it happen.
1: That's right. And, you know, of course, uh, I think the practical reala- reality of that is just the threat of that happening can change the dynamic on the ground and, you know, hopefully utilities and states and various stakeholders can get to yes and find a an acceptable route but by removing that veto power then at least you can get to yes you can, you know the, the answer isn't going to be ultimately no if it's truly in the deemed in the national interest the answer is going to be you know this route or that route.
0: Final question for you here we have not yet seen a FERC order on transmission reform. When might we expect that? Is there any guidance? And and what's your views on will it have teeth?
1: There is no guidance. It's up to the, the commission, particularly the chair, Willie Phillips, to kind of say what their plans are. They are busily working on interconnection reforms first. They have a proposed rule and any day now literally could be next week. And if not, at the end of July, it could be in September. Uh, they could issue the final rule on interconnection reforms. So that's consuming their their near term focus. And then after that, it's it's not clear that you know they need to have three votes um, or a majority uh, to to pass something
0: at the commission.
1: At the commission, there's five seats currently. Four are are serving. One of them's term just expired, though he can serve through the end of the year. Other nominations have not. Uh, happened yet. There are, you know, people being talked about and discussions going on, but, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of uncertainty about who the commissioners are going to be, and there might be a little bit of waiting to see how that shakes out before they, you know, do the do the big transmission planning uh, final rule.
0: Rob, thanks very much for talking.
1: Great to be here. I uh, enjoyed it. Thanks, Andy.
0: Today's guest has been Rob Gramlich, president of Grid Strategies. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now. This is the final episode of season seven of the podcast. We'll be back on September 12th for the start of season eight in an exciting new year of conversations with energy policy leaders here at the Climate Center and with leaders throughout academia, industry, and policy circles. In the meantime, visit the Climate Center website for our podcast archive, as well as new research news and upcoming in-person and virtual events. Thanks again for listening to Energy Policy Now and see you in September.